Thanks, guys. Let's pray. God, as we start this new series and start the second Sunday of this new year, please, um, as we enter these habits, please pour out your grace on us. We want our minds to be transformed to look like Jesus. We want our hearts to be overflowing with self-sacrificial love. We want our character to be marked by virtuous freedom. We want every moment of our lives to be marked by keeping in step with the Spirit. We know that that is the spirituality of Christ and the Spirit and the Scriptures. Help that to be formed in us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, everybody. Happy New Year. It's good to see you. Um, I, this is the point normally where I would apologize for having the interns preaching last Sunday, but um, actually have, after having heard them, you're welcome. Um, they, were, they were great. Um, also, yeah, that was something clap four times for you guys. That was good. Um, <laughs> next week, no, no, no. That, that, was, that was supposed to just be a joke. Um, uh, so next week, we're going to have um, Justice Sunday, which is the one we'll do usually right before um, Martin Luther King Sunday. We only do like two special Sundays a year. We do Justice Sunday, and we do Persecuted Church in the Fall. That's it. For, there's special Sundays for every Sunday of the year. We only celebrate two. And um, John Good from International Justice Mission is going to be here. It's going to be a really great Sunday. There'll be, there'll be a luncheon focused on issues of justice and mercy after the second service. You may love to be there. Um, and I've spent a couple hours with John. Really interesting. It's worth hanging around just to hear the stories. Um, and he'll be a really engaging speaker. So great, great. Um, and next week would be a good one to bring an unchurched friend for whom making the world a better place and saving the world is like really big on their hearts. Um, they, they might really appreciate the, ser- the service next Sunday. Um, so Justice Day, right? So we're doing, we're starting this series on um, spirituality called Real Spirituality. We're going to do it through the month of January. The last two years, we've done spirituality series in January. Two years ago, we did one on worship. Why actually having not just a relationship with God or believing that God is there, but actually attending to, adoring, and appreciating God directly and doing it together and individually and how that affects us and how that's part of what it means to know and love God was—we covered that two years ago, so we're done for decades. I'm just kidding. And then last year we talked about prayer, how God has, has promised in Christ that we have his ear and that we can talk to him and that there are things that happen when we attend directly to God that change us and that are right and that, that God is there and that things happen when we talk with him and invite him to do things. And so we, that's what we talked about last year for four weeks. And this year, as I am prone to do, and I still don't know if it is a vice or a virtue, I I really wanted to step back and and say, okay, wait, what are we even talking about? Like, when 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 we get up there and we start talking about spirituality, do we even know what we're talking about? Do we even know what's happening? Or is is what's really happening that—because I don't know if you know this, spirituality is not a language of the Bible. The word spirituality is— Nowhere in most translations of the Bible in English. The word spiritually is in the NIV 84 twice. What we generally refer to as spirituality, the Bible doesn't even talk about. The Bible talks about—this is what the Bible talks about—life. It's a holistic concept of everything. When Jesus came, he didn't say, I've come to make you more spiritual. He said, I've come that you may have 
life and that you would have life, that is all of life, all of its components, including its spiritual ones, in the most holistic, complete way possible, that you would have life and that you would have that life abundantly or to the full, right? So my concern is that when we, the minute we start talking about spirituality, in a way we're actually already adopting the language of what the Bible calls the world. And the minute you start adopting another language, you just kind of can't help but adopt some assumptions. And when you adopt those assumptions, it can create some confusions. And when you adopt those confusions, things get a little foggy. And before you know it, you're confused. And when Jesus says in Mark 4, here's what happens with worldliness, it's not like it pulls our faith up by the roots. It's like thorns. It kind of closes it and chokes our faith. Right? Let me, let me frame this by giving you four examples. God, okay? Do you, know, do you know what role God gives himself on the first pages of the Bible? What is the first thing God absolutely wants us to know about himself? Right? It's John 4. It's all the way in the fourth gospel where God insists God is spirit. Right? I'm spirit. Because that was the important point then because they were talking about which mountain you're supposed to worship Jesus on or worship God on and ultimately see the Messiah come. No, the first page of the Bible, God introduces himself as a creating craftsman. Right? He's there. There's chaos. The first verb is he creates out of nothing, right? Or he creates into this world. And then do you know what the next like three verbs are? And he fashions or makes, and he fashions or makes, and he fashions or makes. And then it says he creates. And then it says, and he fashions or makes. And the whole thing is told to us in a work week of six days of work, one day of rest, and then it's immediately connected to the work week in the Ten Commandments about the Sabbath in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5, I believe, where it talks about that our lives should look like that. That is, the first thing God says about himself is, I make stuff. I'm a creator. I fashion things. You see, the first thing that he shows himself as is not a mystical guru, but a plumber or an engineer. Why? Because all this physical stuff is his. Not some mystical, ethereal world we can't see. That's his too. He created a very multivalent, multifaceted creation. But this physical stuff is his. He made it. He fashioned it. And it is one of the first things he told us. And one of the first things he said he made us is not mystical, ethereal things. He made us into workers and into baby makers and into people who bring the potential out of creation and people who do all kinds of physical stuff. And the absolute thing he demanded of us was that we would love, right? That we would love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's in the Old Testament, remember? And that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. That is, the real, physical, corporeal, actual human beings through actual physical actions of love, which he delineates in like 600 laws about how you're supposed to behave and treat other humans. And in some cases, the environment, right? So this is kind of a foreign language to how God introduces himself. Also church. I mean, think about this. So you got a card in your bulletin this morning. It's a Bible memory verse card. We're going to have—we're going to do a little Bible memory this year. We're going to have a whole verse for every series in the year. So in 52 weeks, we're going to memorize like seven verses. It's going to be grueling, okay? 
And we're going to have one for the year and one for every series, but the one for the year is also the one for our second series in Second, in second Peter. And that one's about seven verses long, but all the rest are pretty short. And that kind of, even for people who go to church, that kind of feels spiritual. Or if like, you don't, you're not really much of a Christian. You might be like, oh, memorizing Bible verses. Yeah, I think I've heard something about that, right? But then what was, like, one of the other major announcements was Jill saying, hey, we're going to have this Financial Peace University class. You can be financially free. Like, you could understand if somebody was like, yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. You want me to give more? I get it. I get it. You want my money? I get it. All, all organizations, probably especially churches. No, actually, that class is one of the most spiritual things you could possibly do. Because God is a craftsman, and he makes stuff, and he produces things, and he does things, and he invests. Do you know that venture capitalists often behave more like God than a lot of pastors? Because they take something, and they look for an opportunity— that if they invested something in it, it would create this whole new thing, right? There was somebody—okay, think about this. There was somebody, like, in the 1980s that believed smartphones could exist, okay? That's, ins- that's crazy. Do you realize that's crazy? That, like, somebody thought was willing to bet the farm, okay, on the fact that this company that had been making, com- you know, like, computers that were kind of this big or— they were making a Motorola making cameras. <laughs> Could make a little space age device like that you saw in Star Trek, where they would go boop, 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 and people would like get better. And they invested millions and billions of dollars into some crazy engineers that were like, yeah, we could do some more math and make that work. <laughs> okay. And then it and then it happened. Right? Money. A vision for it, for what it could produce in creation, how it could change the lives of billions of people through an act of investment in transformation, right? That is, that is a divine activity. Now, there's a lot of shenanigans that goes on in financial circles, right? And there's a lot of sinful pastors. But you see the idea? Your, work, your money is what you produce. It's, it's also bigger than that. How many moral decisions do you actually believe are made for you because of where you are financially? There's a lot of people that wouldn't consider changing professions, though they hate their job, and they actually don't believe this is what they're supposed to be doing. There's people that, um, that just, they don't, they don't take risks. There's a lot of younger people that don't have children. They get married, but the real reason they're not having children is because children are expensive and that they smell bad, but that they're expensive and there's still an enormous amount of debt, and how could we do this, and so on, but they can still afford other things, and, right, there's a number of couples in this church that got out of their, they took financial peace, got out of, they got out of debt, they saved a couple tens of thousands of dollars, and that's when God told them they'd be adopting. And then they adopted internationally, or they wrote some huge check to a friend of theirs that couldn't afford it, but longed to, or they've gone on mission trips they never thought they'd go on, or they were generous with family members who really needed it that they could really help, right? You you and I have no idea how big a coward we are and how much we use our financial space right now as an excuse for what sins we can't repent of, what good we can't do, what cannot be expected of us.
Our, your financial situation is one of the most spiritual things about you. And that class is not about you giving more. It talks about it, for, it's just like a 10-hour class. It talks about giving like 37 seconds. But what it talks about is people being free. Because money is spiritual. Atheism. There's a, um, a, a website called Evolution is True by a relatively belligerent um, emeritus professor of ecology and evolution at the University of Chicago named something Coyne. Jeremy Coyne, maybe? I can't remember. Anyway, he wrote a short post called, Do We Need a New Word for Spiritual? And basically the conclusion of the post was, I don't know, right? Which is fine. It's a blog. Who cares, right? But he, you want to know what came after that? Question mark? 76 pages of comments. And on this website, um, Dr. Coyne has removed all believers. No believers, no religious people of any kind are allowed to comment on his website at all. He deletes all of them and blocks everybody. So it was a pure discussion of skeptics and atheists. And you know what they all were saying? We need a word for something kind of spiritual or transcendent, but it's got to be a word that would never lead people to the conclusion that there is anything spiritual or transcendent. Huh. Um, right? And you know what the, the word they settled on was? Numinous. Right? Because Carl Sagan liked it. Do you know what numinous is? It is the Greek word for spiritual, spelled into other letters and pulled into English so that it can be really sophisticated. Right? But all these atheists, as best—and they're talking with each other, being like, how does our worldview work in their thing? There is something bigger than our immediate normal experience, and everybody knows it, and we know it, and if we don't have a word for it, if we can't talk about it, our worldview doesn't make any sense. And they're right. I disagree on how to solve that problem, but they're right. Or here's—let a let me give you like kind of a normal example, okay? So imagine— um, you're like at work, you go, you just imagine you have a job, and imagine you go to work, and there's like some dude at work who's like 37, right? He got married a little late. He's having his first child. He's been nervous the whole pregnancy. You've talked to them about it at work, and his wife finally has a baby, and the baby's healthy, and he's so psyched. And so you send him a text, and you're like, so happy the baby's great, and that your wife's doing well. Hey, I'd love to come visit you sometime. Can't wait to see you at work. And you're like, okay, he thinks I'm nice. And then he texts back, he's like, yeah, you could totally come visit me at the hospital. And you're like, oh, crap. I have to be, like, loving. So you, like, <clears throat> you go and you meet up with him at the hospital in the maternity ward with, like, the glass, and he's holding the baby, and he starts jabbering on about, like, was like, yeah, these people can't visit, and my wife did this, and unless she's feeling better, and blah, 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 and I've been so tired, look at the baby, blah, blah. And, and he gets kind of the end where there's nobody else around but you, and he kind of knows you're a Christian, and he, he, he says, you know, when they put him in my arms, there was something like about, like it look, I was looking at him and it looked like he was looking at me. I know they say they can't focus, but my baby can. And he's, oh, you can just tell he's so smart already. And I, I was like, this is from my, this child's from my own body. Like my experience in this, in this world kind of flows through him into the future. And like, I'm responsible for him. And like, it was, it, dude, it was a spiritual experience, right? Spiritual experience. And, and, you, and not only does he say that, but he, you kind of realize that, like, this is the guy who talks about ice fishing and golf around the water cooler and, like, you know, weekend gaming. Like, he never says that word, and now he's saying it to you, and you can kind of tell that, like, 
he experienced something he'd never experienced or hadn't experienced in a long time, and he kind of wants to talk about it because that's what worship is. You experience the sublime, you experience transcendence, you want to express it, right? And he goes, it was spiritual, and you realize that if you, like, kind of come down on him, the whole reason he's talking to you is because he thinks you're a Christian, right? So what do you say to this guy? What do you say to him? Is it spiritual? Was it spiritual? Right? You could take the affirmative approach. Yeah, that's a really spiritual moment when they put your child in your arms for the first time. You're so right. So spiritual, right? Or you could be like the sort of like non-committal, right? You'd be like, wow, that sounds like an amazing experience, Fred. Right? Or you could be like the bean-counting accountant Christian. You could be like, now, Fred, that's not what I or the Bible means by spiritual. It is a great experience, but that's a pretty promiscuous way to use the word spiritual, isn't it? <laughs> right? Would you do one of those? Like, so, right— are they all kind of right? Like they're, they're, I mean, I think so. I mean, I think if we believe that we're created in God's image and that we're fundamentally spiritual beings as human beings, the baby is a spiritual creature that God has made. The, the dad looking at that child is spiritual. There's some kind of interaction happening between two spiritual creatures. The dad is experiencing a kind of transcendence and the sublime of the birth of his child, and it's, it's spiritual, Right? But the other two statements are right, too. Right? Is it, like, is it real spirituality? Well, it kind of depends on what you mean by real. Is it real in the sense of true? Well, it's truly spiritual, but is it truthful spiritual? That is, is it true in the sense that it's in proportion to other truths so that it, it frames the world right? Or is the way we're talking about this kind of screwing everything up? Right? Which is why I think when we talk about spirituality, if we're going to use a language the Bible doesn't really even use, but that our culture uses and we're going to get dragged into, we kind of better have straight what on earth this means. And when the Bible says spiritual, now it doesn't use the word spirituality. It only twice uses the word spiritually in one translation, but it uses the word spiritual actually a decent amount, but in a totally different way. When the Bible uses the word spiritual, it means this. True spirituality is spirituality of and by the Spirit. That is, the person of God, the Holy Spirit. God who is Spirit, what that God is and does, desires, loves, and believes. That which is done through the Spirit of God is what the Bible refers to as spiritual. Okay? So we're just going to talk about by and of and by. So true spirituality is of the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit. Now, I mean, let's look at this in terms of contrast. I had my daughter make a couple of drawings. You can see, like, the, like this, this special, like, hipster beard and everything. Um, so this is what culturally people mean when they say something spiritual is happening, okay? Which means this. There is something out there that can be referred to in the most general sense as the sublime. Okay, that's why we have that English word. It's vague intentionally. That is, there's some excellency, grandeur, or beauty about it that is profound, okay? And when the human person experiences it, they experience themselves being sort of lifted emotionally. Or they feel like there's something settling on them from the outside that's much bigger than themselves, not an emotion bubbling up within them. Right? And that human experience, an experience that something happens, you experience something, and it feels like it's somehow expanding you. It's pulling you out of the ordinary, out of your normal frame of mind, and it's pulling you into something else. That experience is called transcendence, and all human beings have it, and all human beings actually have a longing for it. 
okay? What that does is it affects the person, usually in some kind of internal way. They experience a sense of peace, a sense of longing, a sense of relaxation, a sense of dependence on the universe, a sense of confidence or boldness, a sense, all kinds of things like that can be wrapped up in it. And people experience that in all kinds of things. And the result is often a sense of meaning and awe, which leads to a positive emotional effect. They feel peace or nice or whatever, which tends to lead to general personal well-being, okay? Now, on those terms as a general human phenomenon, do Christians have anything fundamentally wrong? We have a problem with that. Do, do we believe that that is fundamentally false? Right? Okay, as far as I can tell, no. That is a universal human experience that all people have in all kinds of situations. Even, even during sinning. You can, like, take drugs, have promiscuous sex, and feel like you're experiencing something sublime which transcends you and that you feel like is, like, really awesome. And you just feel like it's expanding you. Right? In fact, a bunch of the atheists, in that 76 pages of their discussion, a lot of them talked about their experiences taking drugs. Now, the question, however, though, is not just, is the way we frame something true? A wise Christian is also going to ask the question, what does the truth said this way do to us when it interacts with the kind of people we really are? Because spiritually speaking, right, we are alcoholics and diabetics, okay? There's nothing wrong with a glass of wine, unless you're an alcoholic. There's nothing wrong with sugar. Well, a little sugar, unless you're a diabetic. There are certain things that, like, when they interact with the, what you really are, they're a lot worse than what they are just by themselves. And the problem is, is that we are sin addicts, and we love to lie to ourselves, and we love to find ways around what God wants us to be. And this has some great ones in it. Let me, let's, let me go through three just so they're kind of clear. The first is, I don't know if you followed this, but Secularly speaking, spiritual, spirituality is all about the payoff, well-being. It's all about the payoff. There's very little talk—remember, what you're spiritual about, what the sublime is, doesn't matter, right? Think about it. Think of the conversations you have out there. You, you're not supposed to be particular about that, because what's really important is what you get. You end up with a sense of meaning and awe, which leads to an emotional effect that's positive, which leads to happiness and health, that is, well-being. Now, in case you think that I'm pushing that a little too far, let me just remind you that the, the place I got this definition is a extensive website in the University of Minnesota, which I know the university that shall not be named, right? But they have a very nice website on spirituality. It's all in the medical section. It's under the section of all the things that that university is about related to health, right? taking charge of your health and well-being at the University of Minnesota. Under that heading, and that heading alone, is it reasonable to talk about spirituality? Because spirituality, doesn't that look nice? She looks like she's having a really nice moment, right? Leads to health and well-being. Now think about that. Think about that. What if you said that to, like, your spouse? Like, you, you, you thought about, like, some output you get ultimately from being married, if you're married, right? And you're, or, or, like, you have a friend, 
And you're like, you know, I love being friends with you because I know if I ever have a really big thing happen to me, I know you'll drop everything and be there for me. And that's really all I care about in our relationship. Um, You are a great means to that end. And I appreciate that you exist. Really only for that reason. You see, God in all of the Bible always has an issue with that logic. He always has an issue with being used like that thought of that way, cast aside, not himself being the beginning and the end. You see, and when we think of spirituality like that, and we do, it actually fortifies a secular lie that what things are worth is the ends that they can create for us. Whether they're animals or other people or systems, or whatever, and they're not. The thing that's most important in spirituality is the sublime thing, not the output, which then leads to the second thing, which is that it it leads us to believe that spirituality is an end in itself and therefore can be pursued unrelated to other things, which is another horrifically bad idea. Now, I got this from the University of Minnesota website. Now, I want you to notice something. It's a, this is a Venn diagram, and the shared space is the stuff that the two of them share, right? And this stuff is the stuff that's only those, and you don't need the other to get it. It's very important to understand how the Venn diagram works, okay? Now, notice, over here in spirituality is, how should I live, okay? Now, notice what's over in religion. What is right and wrong, and— what is true and false? Did you think about that for a second? Do you see what that's essentially assuming? That what is right and wrong and what is true and false is actually not relevant to how should I live. You guys that? You see, the idea there basically is because spirituality is about well-being— Legitimate spirituality is just whatever creates well-being. And so whether it's good or bad, right or wrong, noble or evil is not relevant as long as it creates well-being. And so what that means is you can pursue spirituality unrelated to what's morally good or what's actually true. Which is why they believe religion's okay. Because what they actually believe, most of the people who pen that website, is that religion is a completely ridiculous fantasy. But by you believing in and having some feeling of the sublime because you've projected God out there, you'll experience the experience of transcendence, which will lead to emotionally good feelings, which will promote your health and happiness, and therefore your overall well-being. So religion serves that purpose. But you could go—any religion's fine, and any pursuit is fine. Or you see, the the Bible doesn't really go that route. You see, in the Bible, the word spiritual, when it refers to what the Spirit is doing, is is never spiritual versus not spiritual. In the sense of there is a Spirit versus there isn't a Spirit. Spiritual is is always in parallel to things like uh, spiritual versus ungodly. Spiritual versus false. Right? Paul says there's spiritual knowledge and there's carnal knowledge. What does he mean by carnal knowledge? 
Does it just mean, does it just, does it mean physical versus non-physical? That's not what Paul means if you read the letter. What he means is there's, there's worldly knowledge that denies the existence of God and therefore uses morality and truth however it wants to to get what it wants. That's carnality. And, but there's something else which is called spiritual, which is believing that our emotional pursuits, the good we do with our bodies, what's actually true, and what is good, noble, and right, that is all of what is good, true, wise, noble, and beautiful, all coheres together, and what is spiritual has to live in perfect woven union with all of these things. That is, the idea that the Venn diagram between religion and spirituality, that you would see any blue— is a nonsensical idea in the Christian faith. You could talk about spiritual practices versus re- religious doctrine or something as one affects the other or how they're interrelated. Did Jesus rise from the dead is different than how do I pray so that I feel like something's happening or whatever. You can talk about a spiritual theology and a systematic theology, but you can't separate them. Does that make sense? And you see— just the way we talk about spirituality presumes you can do that. And so people talk about spirituality all the time, completely independent of what's morally true or good, or what is actually true or false. Which leads to the third thing, which is this. If the payoff of spirituality starts with the experience of the sublime, then what it kind of means is this. Any sublime will do. Right? If, if what you need is something to trigger the— something that is sublime to trigger the experience of the transcendent in you, there's so much in the world that can trigger the experience of transcendence. There's so many things that you could find sublime. You might really like hiking, and Glacier National Park will just do it for you. You might like sunsets or Twinkies. I mean— your temple of, of sublimeness could be Starbucks. I mean, there's, there's any number of ways—sorry, that one was too close to home. I mean, um, Chick-fil-A. Oh, sorry. Um, there's all kinds of—all kinds of sublimes. And if the payoff is well-being, and if you can pursue it without relationship to truth or beauty or rightness, then what that means is any sublime will do. And here's— Here's the thing that every Christian should know. God is the most sublime thing that there is, and yet he's terrifyingly sublime. He's terrifyingly sublime. Somebody, somebody, I said, I talked about this last hour. Um, that was the thing people talked about the most. Was that, it was because like, I said this. I'm going to say now. Um, Christians don't like to pray. Christians hate praying. Because it's like, it's like being in the locker room with God. Like, he's not really looking at you, but you're naked. And he knows it, and you know it. And, and like, you know he sees, he sees your whole life. The minute you actually, like, you don't have to light candles and be all quiet and be in pitch dark. But the more, the more distractions you get rid of, and the more it settles in on you that it is you and God, God doesn't have to say anything for you to hate it. Because his sublimeness, his enormity, is the kind that is moral and truthful. Because for him, it's all bound up together. He's sublimely truthful. He is sublimely good. 
He is sublimely beautiful. And all of that to sinful, self-deceiving creatures is terrifying. And so we don't want any of that. We want another kind of sublime, the sublime of God's creation that we can interact with apart from him so that we can make the creation do what the creator was meant to do. And we can suck our sublime, our transcendent feelings out of the sublimeness of creation so that we can scratch the itch of our desire for the transcendent and we don't have to face our terror at facing the terrifying sublimeness of God himself. That is, Everybody has divine dread, even Christians, because Christians don't believe the gospel. And because Christians are incredibly worldly. Because we don't believe the gospel, and because we're incredibly worldly, and we know what God's probably going to say if we actually really talk to him, or if we actually really don't even talk, we just, like, imagine he's really there. And it all speaks for itself. Right, there's this great passage in C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, where one older demon is talking to a younger demon, and he goes, look, look, I know he's a Christian. I know he says he's going to pray. But here's what you have on your side. He doesn't want to. Everybody is unnerved by actually being in the presence of God. He'll talk about God. He'll read, even read theology books or read the Bible. But what he will not do, he will do it as little as possible, is attend directly to God himself in prayer. That he will not, that he doesn't want to do. He may do it, but everything's in your favor to tempt him not to because he doesn't really want to do it. That's Christians. And what Paul and other biblical authors tell us is that before we were saved, we, we wouldn't even hear of the idea. Partly because everybody is terrified to hear the truth unless they already know they're going to be forgiven when the truth comes out. Until you know the gospel and you know about God's divine forgiveness and you actually believe it and you believe that it's really happened and it can really happen and that you actually exist in the presence of divine forgiving grace, you're never going to listen to the truth because the truth is always going to condemn you if you're a human being. And unless you have prearranged forgiveness, we're all too dishonest to be honest. And because of that, we— need to recognize that that the normal, worldly, secular definition of spirituality that everybody's kind of vaguely functioning on is like an enormous pixie stick to a diabetic. Right? It's like a, it's like a case of Jimmy Bean to an alcoholic. It is way more than we can handle on the basis of the people we really are. Because we will treat spirituality as a mean to our own ends. We'll believe that we can seek whatever kind of spirituality we want unrelated to morality or truth. And we will seek the sublimeness in anything we want to, and we won't seek it in God because God is terrifyingly sublime. But what, this, what the spirituality of the Spirit is, is that through it in Christ, he splits the flint wall of our divine dread with the favor and generosity of God. That God, before, before we can even accept the proper words of our condemnation, he tells us at the same time and even beforehand, I've already provided for your forgiveness and the power you'll need to change. So you are going to have to say you're sorry. <laughs> you are going to have to repent and really turn around, and you are going to have to change. That's going to happen. But I want you to know, before we even talk about that, 
in Christ, I've done everything necessary for your forgiveness, and I've provided everything necessary for your transformation. And only when we can feel safe in that will we really be honest enough to realize that we're guilty. And only when we're willing to realize we're guilty will we be honest enough to realize that we have been fabricating the truth and spinning lies our whole life to protect ourselves from admitting that guilt. And only then can the truth of God come in and the goodness of God come in. And only when that happens can you see how sublime God is. Only then can you revel and rejoice in the, the sense of transcending what you were and how you felt and what you'd experienced and the sublime beauty of the goodness and truthfulness and greatness of God. And only then will he give you back all the sublime things of his creation as situated under him. And when you realize that he's created everything, you will be, your mind will be opened to the fact that the sublime creator has no unsublime creations. Everything in your ordinary life, everything you wanted to transcend somehow in a spiritual experience is itself in Christ a spiritual experience in that they're all, every experience could be a transcendent experience when you realize all of God's creations are sublime. Right? Between services, uh, there was a mom that brought, was walking by with her 10-month-old, and she just wanted to dig around in my mouth with her finger, the baby, not the mom. And, <laughs> you know, I just got a chance to stop and to see that kid smile at me with his, her four teeth and, like, dig around and scratch my gums till they started to bleed. And it was, but it was amazing. You know, my kids are four and up now, and, like, I don't really like children, but it was so great. <laughs> Right? And then right after that, a guy came up to me, and he's like, listen, he's like, I used to think, I used to think all the liquor in the world would get me to a sublime experience of transcendence, and now 20 years into sobriety, I really feel each day like one more day of sobriety is sublime. It feels transcendent to me because of Jesus. You see, you don't just get back, you don't just have an infinitely new realm of sublimeness in the person of God that is split open because the divine dread is broken up in Christ. You not only receive back everything you thought was sublime before, plus lots of other things because creation is amazing, you begin to realize that all the things you didn't pay attention to because you didn't think they were sublime, the things you wanted to transcend in your ordinary life with some kind of recreation or feeling or something so that you could jump up into the sublime for a minute and not be bored by ordinary life, everything in your ordinary life becomes sublime too or has that potential at every moment. We have no idea how spiritual we could be. And that's one of the reasons I think why Jesus has no use for that language. Because all of life is spiritual to him. I have come that you would have life. Everything. From every diaper to seeing in your mind's eye the beauty of the glory of the gospel of Christ in the face of Christ Jesus. Everything. It's all life when it's connected to the sublime one who created and made. The second thing we need to talk about—sorry, I need like four hours to talk about all this stuff. The second thing is, is that um, true spirituality is by the Spirit. 
You see, there's, there's two essential fallacies to modern talk about spirituality. One is what I would call like ridiculously hippie, lazy spirituality. And that's a technical term, and I have trademarked it, so don't copy me. Um, and that is basically this. Look, if there's a divine out there, if there's like a God out there, like you Christian people say, if he wants me to have something or know something or see something, he'll give it to me. I mean, you talk about God, that he's loving and gracious and all that kind of stuff anyway. And so like, if he wants to do something, he'll do something. If he wants me to know something, I'll know something. If he wants me to see something, I'll see something. Like he's probably perfectly capable, right? It'll just, it'll just happen. The other side is sort of like the, the work hard technique spirituality, which is like, you know, if we, if I like do spiritual stuff, like I'll, I'll have a spiritual experience. Like if I meditate or if I like, I do these sorts of techniques, whether they're self-help well-being techniques or whether they're kind of spiritual self-help te- well-being techniques, whatever they are. And you see, the gospel just completely disbelieves both of those. Jesus didn't talk like that, either one of those at all. The way Jesus showed us the work of the Spirit would work is he said, listen, this is how it works. It is, it is gracious and it is empowered, that, which means this. Everything that we need, not just for our salvation, that is our justification, our forgiveness, but everything we need for any kind of transformation God would call us to, that is, he gives us That is, God demands incredible things of us. God demands that you be happy. He demands that your heart would be full of joy. He demands that you be cheerful. He demands that. And he threatens terrible things if you will not be happy. And he gives the ability to receive everything that he demands. And so he demands that you be righteous. He rightly demands it. And then he gives the crucified and risen Christ to justify you utterly by faith and to bring total forgiveness over you. And he demands that you be transformed into the image of his son. And he freely gives the power of his Holy Spirit to energize and empower your transformation. It's gracious and it's empowered. But here's the other thing. It's a sweaty business. For the person who's like, the person who's like, that's what I thought. No, it's not like you thought. It's a sweaty business. Because every, everything in the Bible that talks about grace speaks of reception and use. So the idea in the Bible is not you have an outlet and God just plugs in and like, The way the Bible talks about this is that God gives, but you have to actively receive. That's why the dynamic is called faith, right? God promises, God freely gives, and God empowers to you another independent creature who has the capacity of will and who is called to be a certain kind of creation. And when God gives— the Bible teaches that what we have to do is we have to receive. Like, we have to take it, and we have to, like, do it. Let me, let me show you a couple examples. Because the, a, a normal pedantic way to think about this would be like, oh, that's somehow a contradiction. But it's not. Actually, what the Bible says is the one empowers the other. That you could never do one or never believe one without the other. 
Sorry, let, let, there's two verses we'll read. We'll read the—this is going to be our memory verse for the next series, and then I'll read our memory verse for this series, okay? So this is a memory verse for next series. His divine power has given us— notice the graciousness? He's given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Do you see the theme there? The whole emphasis of that sentence is he's doing it. He's giving. It's his generosity. And his promises in the death and resurrection of Jesus— through his divine power, he's given us everything we need. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may—here's two things—participate in the divine nature and to escape the corruption of the world. Now, that may not sound super sexy to you, but like, those are the two great longings of any noble person. And if sharing the divine nature— <laughs> Was it in the Bible? That would probably definitely be blasphemy. But it's right there at Second Peter. He said, in this, in all that God has done, he's actually made it possible for you to share in, in him in a way that is so unified in the, in the great sublime one that it could be referred to like that. That your relationship to the sublime one could be so amazing and that you could also, negatively speaking, escape the corruption of the world and to the beauty of truthful, honorable spirituality. Right? If you look at the verse for today, right? Look at your card for a second, if you have it. There's a verse, and there's two spots that are kind of highlighted in green. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do you see the idea there? For it is God who works in you. Right? But at the same time, you can look at the exact same verses that are all about the gracious generosity of God to give us salvation and to give us the empowerment that we need. And at this, those same verses say, it's a sweaty business. God gives you everything and you work as hard as you can right? So he says, all that stuff we just read, right? Through his, he has given us his very good and precious promises, so that through them you might participate in the divine nature, and escape the corruption of the world, for this very reason. So because of all that gracious gift, all that loving forgiveness, all the promises, all the power, and ability, and capacity, he says, for that reason, and for that, only that reason, that's the only reason good enough, for that very reason, make every effort. Right? How hard do we work? How, how sweaty is it? Make every effort. Don't just put in a little effort. Right? For what? For character. For transformation. Add to your faith goodness. Do you see the, you see the first word of Christian spirituality is in this list? The very first word. Goodness and a goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control— can you, can you think about doing a spirituality talk in a dorm? Like, these are the categories of spirituality? Well, when you're spiritual, we can do this. You're gonna have—you're gonna have goodness, self-control, perseverance. They're gonna be like, what the, what the heck is this seminar on? That's—that's biblical spirituality. Perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness— Love, 
For if you possess these things, you see, possess them through what? The generous, gracious gift of God and the empowerment of the Spirit, working through the habits of grace of making every effort to grow in those things. If in doing all that you can, but yet receiving it graciously through God's power, if through that you, you receive these, if you possess them in qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. Same thing in Philippians 2. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only my presence, but much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For, you see how the logic here is just reversed? In Second in Peter 1, it's because God has done all this for you, therefore, make every effort. Here's just reversed. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? How hard does somebody work who's working something out with fear and trembling? Really hard. It's a sweaty business. But the only reason good enough to work that hard, to persevere in the divine dread, to push through the fear and trembling, to seek the true sublimeness of God, to experience all of the transcending truths of the gospel in their, in their truthfulness, in their moral beauty, in their wisdom, the, the only reason good enough for that is for— it is God who works in you, both to will and to act according to his good purpose. Probably the most daring of all in the Bible is in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says this, he goes, he goes, for by the grace of God I am what I am. And I worked harder than any of them, meaning other people who worked for the gospel. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was within me. You see that? as almost a boast. But he says, the person you see in front of you— Well, think about this. Do you see what God is doing? This is very offensive. He's basically saying this. You will sweat and work as hard as you can the rest of your life to, to, to have Christ formed in you, and whatever is accomplished, you will never be able to brag. You will, you, whatever you can do, whatever, whatever is added to your godliness, whatever is transformed in your life, at no point will you ever be able to say, I did that. Not ever. And yet you're going to work so hard. Right? He was able to say, look, all those other guys, everybody's working at, working at godliness. I can tell you honestly, as just a fact, I've worked harder than any of them. But the man I am today, it's by the grace of God that I am what I am. And even when I was working as hard as I could work, and it looked like I was making myself into a Christian, even then, it was not I, but the grace of God that's within me that caused any positive effects that there were. If we understand that spirituality in the Bible, that is really what it means to have real life. If we don't really understand what that means, it'll do a bunch of things. We'll be less combative with non-Christians and yet less confused by the way they talk about spirituality. We will not take in those problems that come from taking on that view of spirituality, which many Christians hold. And there, it's, it's an incredibly poisonous worldliness that will choke your faith. You have to get free of it. That's not what spirituality is. 
That's not true spirituality. That's not biblical spirituality. That's not the spirituality of the Spirit. It is a meaningful definition of spirituality. Those things are spiritual. But that's not anything like what spirituality is meant to be or what it is. And you can be free of that, and it'll bring a clarity that will lead you to a much deeper spirituality, much deeper life in Christ and in the Spirit. It will allow you to not be angry about how hard God is, quote, making you work. And it won't leave you feeling constantly guilty that you're not working hard enough. It will confront you enough so you can see that you're avoiding God, but also encourage you enough to know that if you stop avoiding God and you break through the divine dread out of, out of, the, out of the courage that comes from believing the gospel— you will find sublime things in God you've never seen. You will find transcendence in the ordinary tasks that you hate right now and that you resent. Everything you do will be better. You'll see not only that it's there, you'll see its truth, its beauty, how it's connected to God, how it functions in the overall work of creation, how it's part of God being a worker and making you a worker. For a lot of men, but also some women too, you'll realize that Spirituality isn't some emotional thing. It's not this thing that like, well, you know, emotional people, and mostly women, are emotional enough to be spiritual. But like, dude, like, I turn wrenches for a living. I can't be spiritual. Bullcrap. That's not true. That's not what spirituality is. Spirituality is making you into a truthful, honorable, lover of goodness, who sees beauty, provides and protects and nurtures it, who is confronted and led to goodness and repentance, who strikes out in courage, who does what is right, who is a maker, a creator, a developer, a fashioner, and who does it with all their might. You don't have to be emotional. You don't have to be feminine. You don't have to be anything. All you have to be is a human to be that. But there's a lot of guys that have dropped out of spirituality because they think mysticism is spirituality. It's a part of it. But that's not how Jesus talked. He didn't even use the word spirituality. He talked about life and the abundance that it could have. And I could go on. There's a hundred more implications. But the point is that without unnecessarily fighting with our neighbors, coworkers, or doormates— we have got to get free of the ridiculously silly, poisoning ideas about spirituality that are choking our faith in confusion. Come back to the very straightforward message of the scriptures that spirituality is the work of the Spirit, forming in us the mind of Christ, welling up in us over, overflowing and self-forgetful love, teaching us what virtuous freedom looks like, and showing us how to keep in step with the Spirit. I mean, that's as good a summary as anything when the Apostle Paul just says this. Do you want to know what Christian spirituality is? Since we're people of the Spirit, we should keep in step with the Spirit. And if we, if you, if you don't see how big that is, what all of us have, you have to do what all of us have to do, which is, in the sweaty work of finding life in Christ, 
to, pos- to use the habits of grace to position ourselves under the faucet of God's outpouring graciousness and power. He has spoken and shown himself in the Bible and in Jesus. Hear his word. He has opened all heaven to your voice through the death and resurrection of Jesus. You have his ear. Talk to him. And he has created a new family of a new health, a new life in the church. And he's called you to be part of that body, the body of Christ. And he has called you to act like him in the world to move in obedience through actions of mercy and justice. And in those actions, sweaty as they may be and risky as they may feel, those are the places where he dumps out a drenching amount of his gracious power. So that you may someday say, yeah, I worked worked harder than all the other people in my pew, but I am who I am because of the grace of God. And even when I was working so hard, I know that whatever came of it was it was the grace of God working in me. Let's pray. Father, I know that there's probably people in this room who uh, wanted a different kind of sermon. But I I pray that, um, I pray that we we would enjoy a sense of clarity about you a peace and a freedom that comes from letting go of our, pla- our hiding places and facing you as you really are, even though that can be terrifying, even for those of us who are Christians. And I pray that you would show us how gracious you are and how truthful you are and how empowering your presence can be. And would you please show us the ways in which we, we are not actively receiving you? Ways in which we won't believe your precious promises? In which we really don't want the transfa- transformational effect of your divine power in us? In the ways we're half in and half out, in the ways our own commitment to worldliness is choking. And I pray, Father, that you'd help us to forget about being spiritual, and to embrace your life and try to keep in step with your spirit, and to realize that the true spirituality that we as spiritual beings have a capacity for rises up under our feet when we commit ourselves to the spirit, the truth, and your moral beauty. We want to experience your sublimeness and feel transcendence in everything. so that we are transformed in a happy enjoyment and nobody needs to say a word about well-being because it overflows everywhere. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?